Hey, creative, if you love the show and it has meant a lot to you, could you do me a favor? Would you share it with somebody that you care about? Your friend, your mom, your lover, whoever it is, because podcasts really are spread person to person. And I don't know about you, but the ultimate influencers in my life are my friends and family. So if all of you could share the podcast with just one person, it would make a massive difference in our creative community, grow it, and we can all help support and lift each other up and get toward our dreams even faster. So please, if you have time today and you feel so compelled, share the show with a friend. Oh, also, if you have time, feel free to like pop on over to Apple and leave it a rating and review and a rating on Spotify. Okay. Love you. What makes an idea pop? What is the process from ideation to creation to release? How do you effectively incubate and birth a creative baby? These are questions on every creative's mind. Today's guest has answers on how to come up with and produce a successful creative project with a high likelihood of virality. You're in for a treat. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, and multi-passionate creative. And this show is meant to give you tools to love, trust, and know yourself enough to claim your right to creativity and pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. Today's guest is Carrie Wolf. She's the Executive Vice President and Co-Head of Development and Programming at Kinetic Content, which is a production company that creates and produces top-rated series, including Netflix's Love is Blind and The Ultimatum. Some of Carrie's executive producer credits include Married at First Sight, Claim to Fame, Man vs. Bear, and many more. You may not know this, but I simply adore reality TV. I actually think it's one of the most creative mediums and that if you watch it through the right lens, it can teach you even more about being a human and human relationships than scripted television. Because at the end of the day, there's still real people in real relationships for the most part. So you can imagine my excitement to have Carrie on and learn what goes into making a hit reality show. Carrie really knows the creative process. She comes up with new show ideas, develops them, pitches, sells, and advises on new reality TV series. Today, she's here to talk about her latest show, The Ride, which is an eight-episode docuseries on Prime Video featuring the world of professional bull riders. Yes, you heard that right. I can't wait for you to hear more about it. From today's chat, you'll learn the anatomy of a good idea, how to maintain optimism and positivity through setbacks, what really goes into making a hit show from start to finish, why rest is a necessary part of the creative process, the concept of creative debt and what you can do about it, and much more. Okay, now here she is, Carrie Wolf. Carrie I cannot believe I get to talk with you today. A fellow Midwesterner, an incredible, accomplished, badass woman in television. I've, I was going to say in media, but you are in media, but you're in television development, producing. Like you're just everything I love and everything I aspire to be. So thank you for being here today. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for hosting. I love your podcast. I like, I listened to a bunch the last couple weeks and was so inspired by your guests. Oh like, my gosh. I cried. I laughed. You have a really amazing podcast. So congratulations. Thank you. I really appreciate that. That means most coming from you. And what your listeners didn't hear because you weren't recording it. Yes. I asked you to be my friend yes. because you're just a badass bitch. And I accepted and I wanted to ask you to do the same thing. I've been doing that a lot lately. Asking I know. people to be my I friend. I saw on your Instagram. You're like, I just had lunch, met up with so-and-so. And I'm like, okay, good. I have an in. <laughs> Yeah, to ask her to be my friend. I think we need to do that more in adulthood because obviously we all did it on the playground when we were in kindergarten. But it gets harder as you're an adult. And yeah, you make friends in work and, you know, maybe sometimes when you're out socially. But when you see somebody who's a kindred spirit, don't be afraid to ask. It is vulnerable, but it's amazing when it comes to fruition from home. I do. Yeah, I work from home. So there's a feeling of isolation where you're like, I kind of just crave human connection. And like, I need to just go and have a lunch with somebody and look at them in the eyes and be like, how is your life? Because we need to talk about our lives right now because we need to connect. Because it's like, I'm sitting at my kitchen island working all day and it's quiet. I'm on Zooms, but it's not the same. Sometimes I think I'm depressed and then I go out and see someone. I'm like, oh, I was just lonely. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You go to dinner with a friend and you're like, oh my God, my soul feels whole again. Right. And I think that's leading to us going and getting lunch together. Yes. Cool. I can't wait. I can't wait. So, okay. We know what you do now, but I believe creativity is deeply linked to the inner child. And I'm curious if you trace the lines of your life and you really go back, what were the signs from your childhood that you'd end up doing what you do now as an adult? It's a really good question. And I know the answer. When I was a kid, I lived in Indiana on a farm with a barn, you know, cornfield surrounding my house. I had like three channels and I would go into town to my grandma's house and she had cable TV and I would sit there for hours and I would watch MTV and I would just become obsessed with spring break MTV. And then like in 1992, his real world came out. And then I was like, what is happening? And I would literally spend the night because my grandma was my best friend. I'd spend the night on a Saturday night. She'd go to bed after we'd watch Golden Girls. And I would stay up and watch TV until four in the morning. I'd be like 10 years old. And I grew this deep love of television. Yes. I became obsessed with television. If I look back now, I realize I was really into pop culture as a kid. We'd go to my mom's best friend's house. It was like out of steel magnolias. She had a little home salon and my mom would be getting her hair done. And I remember her friend had a subscription to People Magazine and I would just sit there and flip through People Magazine, just loving all the celebrity intel and gossip. And so when I look back, I go, yeah, even as like this Midwestern girl from a tiny, tiny town of like 2000, I found my way to pop culture. I had a deep hunger for it. And I have never lost that. I've never lost the love for TV. I am a fan. Like I sit here and I come up with TV show ideas and I help make the shows. But when it comes down to it, I'm a fan. It's the best job in the world. I know we'll get into my job, but I feel like I have the best job in the world because I'm like always going to be that 10 year old girl that would sit up and there was no remote control at the time. So I'd literally go change a channel, change a channel, change a channel, get to something else and be like, okay, I'm going to go back to my grandma's recliner at four in the morning <laughs> and watch this. That story honestly brings tears to my eyes because I listened to an interview you did with producer Jerry. I mean, I, that's how I know him from Vanderpump. Yes. I've known Jeremiah for so long, like when he were assistants at ETA, but anyway. I know. I, I listened to the whole thing. You two have an incredible history together. And what I got from you is not a hint of cynicism. And that is so rare in this business. It is. It really is. How have you maintained your optimism and love, even when there has been pushback or maybe people that you've encountered that have been cruel or maybe demean that positivity? Because it can be hard at times being a Midwest girl and maintaining that spirit. How have you done that? Well, it's hard at times. I mean, I am pretty jaded. I joke with my team like that we're all jaded. We get the announcements of shows that have been sold like in the non-scripted space where I work. And we're just like, are you kidding? We just got like our metaphorical cigarette. And we're just like, are you kidding me? This business. I am jaded. Yeah. But in terms of like being cynical, I was a young assistant at UTA many years ago. And I remember looking around at the people who are agents and they were very successful. And I remember saying to myself, I don't want to get to a point where I'm making a lot of money. I'm really unhappy and I don't enjoy my life. I have to be happy. A lot of them were driving beautiful cars and living in beautiful homes, but they weren't like their souls weren't happy. And I went, nope, I'm going to bed at night knowing I treated people fairly, that I loved what I was doing for the most part, not always, but that I was happy and that I was the same person I've always been. I guess I have a strong core probably because I have an amazing family and because, listen, I know I'm biased because I'm Midwestern. I just think we're all special people. We're kindred souls. And for me, it was always really important that I had a good quality of life and my career is very important to me, but it's not everything. And so I would go to bed at night and I'd be like, today sucked. Today was hard, but it's not who I am. I messed up on something. I got yelled at, but it's not who I am. There's so much more to life. Wow. It sounds like you understood that quite young. I feel like I just learned that last year. And it's a hard lesson to learn. But once you do it so freeing, because that's when you really start doing your best work, because you realize who you are is the best thing about you. It's not about what you do. 
But it's a catch-22 for people like you and I. We do place importance in our careers. We want to do a good job of what we do. Like you're really, really good at what you do in all the different areas you do. Like, oh, I'm, I'm a singer. Well, you're not just a singer. You're like an accomplished singer. You're incredible. Like you're up for a Webby, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, kind of a big deal. I can't believe that still. I mean, because I've been submitting for years and it's been Cricketsville, USA. a big deal. But like my point is you place a lot of importance in doing a good job, yeah. whatever you try and accomplish. And I want to be really good at my job. And it's hard because our identities can become subconsciously wrapped up in what we do in our careers. But I think there's a way to have that, to do an amazing job or strive to be the best in what we do, or at least really good, but also separate it and go, it's not who I am. Like if I'm fired tomorrow from my job, I'm still going to have this compass of like who I am as a human being. I'm going to have an amazing group of friends, family. Like I know you're close with your parents. I listened to your podcast with Brittany Brave when you were back in Michigan and you were talking about being back home in Michigan. All of those things are the most important parts of our life. Those facets are what, at the end of the day, what are the most meaningful, what really keep us alive. So the job part is important to us, people like you and I, but it's not who we are. But it's hard. It's hard to separate, but you got to separate. Yeah. And it's an ongoing process because you think you get there. I heard Jen Sincero once say, new level, new devil. So then you get to the next thing and you have to re-up that and like reinstill your faith in whatever it is you believe and try to, okay, how can I have this massive goal? How can I have this massive dream? But also realize if I don't get it for some reason, I'm still okay. And so you've had this wild, incredible career. And it started out, as we've noted, when you were quite young. You had this idea popped in your head by this guy that you knew from college who you were IMing. And he's like, you love pop culture. You know, you should try to get an agency. And so then you started calling all the agencies and being like, hey, do you think I could work there? And you ended up getting a job. So first of all, tell me, how did you get the courage to just be calling these top five agencies? I just had it in me. I had the hunger. And I tell all of the younger generation, say if you have college listeners, people who are looking for jobs, there's a stark difference between the people who actually make shit happen and those don't. And it's the hunger. You have to have that hunger inside of you. And I had the hunger. And so I was this girl, went to Indiana University, and I didn't know anybody in LA except for this one friend who you mentioned who had graduated the year before me, who told me like, hey, there are these like big talent agencies and blah, blah, blah. You need to like look into them. And I just was motivated and was like, you know what? I like envisioned my life and I wasn't going to stay in Indiana. I was like, I am moving to a big city. And at first I thought it was going to be New York. And then I interned at Spin Magazine, thought I was going to work in like the magazine business. And I was like, eh. And I knew I wanted to work in like the entertainment business, right? That love of pop culture. But I had no idea what that meant. I'm like, what does that even mean? Am I a publicist? Am I in marketing? I had no idea. So my friend told me to call the agencies. And I'm like, oh, like Jerry Maguire had come out. I'm like, oh, agent. I just got their numbers and I just sent my resume and I like called them and called them and called them and called them. And finally, like one person called back from UTA and invited me to interview. And I just flew there and I was like 21 and I'd never been to LA and I rented a gigantic SUV and stayed downtown. (laughs) Thought that was in the middle of the city and interviewed and got a job at UTA. And then my career was launched. And you became an agent at 23. So you moved up from assistant to agent pretty quickly. Talk about this process because that must have been incredibly daunting and exciting. You talked about how you had to learn to negotiate deals. What was the most valuable thing you learned from that time period? And how would you advise somebody else who's like taken on this big position but doesn't quite know how to navigate it yet? You know what I would say? I mean, obviously, like you're going to get yelled at all the time. Just be strong. You're going to be, whether you're an assistant, whether you're a junior agent or any sort of competitive big company like that in any business, but the entertainment business, there's politics, there's hierarchies, bureaucracies, like be yourself, stay true to yourself, be a kind person, work hard, of course, learn as much as you can at an agency specifically or the nucleus of the business. So I was meeting a ton of assistants. I was going to drinks. Again, it was that hunger. I wanted to get to know as many people as possible. 
And then you have each other to, to support each other. You become friends with one another. You have that built-in level of trust with people. And you're talking to producers, you're talking to like network execs. And I was in the reality TV business in the early 2000s and it was blowing up. Survivor was huge. Like who wants to be a millionaire? Just come over from the UK. But there were all these shows like Temptation Island and like it was just like a really exciting time. It was like the beginning. It was like the birth. Not technically the birth was actually like a decade before with real world, but this was like the wild, wild west. I just happened to be there, this young corn fed Midwestern girl who had like moved out to LA, knew nobody. And my boss was like, we need more bodies in the department at the agency in our alternative TV, aka reality TV department. And I was a 23 year old girl and I was like giving clients and I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know how to do a deal for this person. I'm just going to throw myself in and learn. And so, yeah, my advice would be stay true to yourself, work super hard, get to know as many people as possible. I know it's cliche, but relationships are everything in this business. Like they really are. Once you can connect with somebody and be like, oh, we like each other. Like we're going to, we're going to be there for each other. We're going to help each other out. Then you have like a whole network of connections. I've heard you mention a few times, like you're going to get yelled at and I get that. But also at the same time, I don't, because here's the thing. I always say I'm pretty sure we could make a show without somebody wanting to like throw up in the morning. Like I'm pretty sure we could get stuff done without somebody dreading coming into work, like their hands sweating their whole drive into work. What is that mentality of someone shit on me? So I'm going to shit on you too. And how do we actually fix that in this industry? Well, I think we're working towards it. Like I just saw an exec, I won't name, a couple of days ago at a big company who was fired essentially for being a prick. Mm. And if you read the comments on the article about him being fired, literally every comment was like, he's a dick. This has been years in the making. And it struck me as interesting because usually there's like the article that's like, so-and-so has left this company and it's like, oh, he was a great exec. No, every comment was like, yeah, it's because he was asshole and he treated people horribly and he yelled at them all the time. And I was like, wow, maybe there's now it's not a sea change, but maybe there is a slight quiet revolution that's going to be happening where people are going to be held up to a higher standard. I mean, listen, like the most powerful people in this business are deemed successful based on like the ratings, the numbers and the box office, et cetera, and like their personalities and their interactions with their employees come second. But I think that hopefully if you're starting out in the business or you're at any point in, in your career, hopefully you can find people that are good people, are fair people, are kind people because they exist and it's more in to be that way. I feel like it's more accepted than it was when I was starting out and like I was at an agency where yelling was the norm. I don't think it's like that as much anymore. Like, of course, they're going to be like big personalities and they're bringing in big money to the company. So they're going to be allowed to be that way. But it's not as acceptable as it was in the beginning for me. I think younger people, the younger like Gen Z generation is less willing to put up with that bullshit. Yeah. Or at least if they do put up with it, they have a bigger support network to be able to communicate and go, this is bullshit, but we're going to like laugh at it. This is ridiculous. And they have more confidence to step away from it. My generation, like I'm 43, we took it. That was like what you do. You just take it. You deal with it. You're lucky to have this job. And so I feel like it's a generational thing. I think the new generation entering the workforce has higher expectations of how to be treated. I happen to align with a guy, Chris, who's the founder of Kinetic, my company, who's like a really nice guy. And I was lucky because he's always been my boss. And he wasn't like throwing things at me. He was like just a really decent person. I got really lucky, like very lucky because I'd have my best friend like sitting next to me at the agency and her boss would be throwing staplers at her. And I'd just be sitting there like typing, doing my job like, oh my God, I dodged a I mean, yeah, I remember you talked about that on Jerry's podcast. You're like, I had this spiky haired boss and he was just doing things differently. And that's why I think you're all so successful because I say, you know, I produce podcasts and I think sometimes the energy behind a show is just as important as the concept. Yeah. Because I think people can feel when something came from a loving environment versus an environment that was based on fear. 
For sure. Absolutely. Their production companies, they like to intimidate the cast members. They like to intimidate the producers working on the show. Our company is known for, I mean, it's kind of like a trickle down thing from our founder, Chris Colin. He's, like I said, just a decent man. And he wants the people at our company to feel appreciated and valued. And so he's the creator of Love is Blind. And so like every morning when the, during the pods section, he's like going in there, he's like talking to the cast members, he's making them feel just kind of giving them a pep talk every morning. And that's just who he is as a person. Like he's so passionate about creating good content, but also like allowing people to be their authentic selves. And he's been like that since the very beginning when I was his assistant in 2001. So it's dependent on the company. Oh, yeah. I really feel viewers feel that. Like, I think that that's part of why you've created such wild success, because there are these loving people at the helms of these shows and you can feel it as a viewer. I often feel like that's why The Office is such a big show. They all had a loving set where it was open, where they were open to people's ideas, where it was so collaborative. That's how you all work at this company. So I am curious, because you've worked with Chris for so long, that's an incredibly long and fruitful creative partnership. What do you think it takes to have a long-term creative partnership that is successful? You have to weather the crazy freaking industry that you're in. (laughs) I mean... Chris and I worked together for 22 years. It'll be 22 years in a couple months. And he and I have worked at an agency together where he was like running a successful department, but he was like, his soul was not happy there. And so I went with him to a production company. I had different roles there. And then I came with him to this company. He created Kinetic. And he and I have just such a shorthand where, again, it's like sort of like without sounding cheesy, God, this is going to sound cheesy. I love cheesy. I'm just going to say We're from it. the like, Midwest. Come on. Our, it's like, <laughs> I know. Like Chris and I, like we know each other so well. It's weird. Like our souls align because he's a good person. He's a decent person. He's not from the Midwest. He's from the East Coast. But like, he's always been just a nice person that's been a big supporter of me and of all of his employees. Like he created Love is Blind, but before Love is Blind, he was really successful in different facets of his space in his career. But like he and I, I guess you could say have a good creative partnership because I trust him. He's brilliant. He's a maverick. I've always like looked up to him so much and we've weathered ups and downs together. There's full trust with him and transparency and He talks to me straight up and I I do the same. And I have another head of development who's really my partner. We're co-heads of development at Kinetic. Her name is Katie Griffin. She and I have worked together for like 13 years and we're like sisters. We don't work out of the office. We work remotely. She moved to Connecticut. She and I shared an office for so many years. We were like sorority sisters. We would sit there. We'd get in. She'd be like, good morning. Hey. I'd be like, hey, what's up? We'd just be like sitting at our desks. We'd be like working and I'm like, oh my God, I'll tell you what happened last night, the fight I got into with my husband. She'd be like, oh, let me tell you about Rob, her husband. We'd just sit there and like bitch and like talk about like some dress we wanted to get. And then we'd be like, all right, let's talk about this new show. And she and I have such like a intimate relationship, like outside of work, we're actually legit friends, like real friends. I had a big time health scare with my mom at Christmas time and her mom's a nurse practitioner. And I was literally on the phone with her every day. We're so close. And so that for me is like my work partnership. I trust her implicitly. It is a hard business. And when I'm having a really bad day, or if I have imposter syndrome, which is often, I call her and I say, how did you think I did on that pitch? Like, what would you have done differently? She's so straight up with me. I'm so lucky to have another woman that I can fully trust. It's everything. That's why these shows are so successful. So I'm going to say it's because of your brilliant ideas. Yes. But the fact that this energy is the foundation, it's all clicking in for me. Okay. First of all, imposter syndrome. Wow. Why do you think after all this time and this many successes and this many credentials and like proof, like you can look at the proof, Carrie, your career, it's right in front of you. Why do you think that still comes up after all that? This is a million dollar question. I was just talking to an executive at a big, big time streamer. And she was saying she has imposter syndrome and she has such hits on this streamer. She has major imposter syndrome. She's been in this business for at least 20 years. She's had so many successes. Why do we have imposter syndrome? 
I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I wish I had the answer to that because I think for people like us, we have high expectations of ourselves. So it's crippling when you feel like you can always be better. You can always do better. And I just have, like I've set a high bar for myself and I feel like I need to like always achieve it. Also, I'm in a sales position, which is really tough because you're constantly getting no's. And I'm like, well, maybe if I had just pitched it in a sharper, clear way or this way or that way, maybe I would have sold it. Maybe I'm not as good of a pitcher. Maybe I'm not as good of an idea generator. Maybe I didn't figure out the format. I just like have a million questions coming into mind. It's the same reason we all go to bed at night and like these thoughts flood our brains. Like, oh, you should really be worried about this. That's not going right in your life. It's the same thing. It's like, you know what? You've sold these shows, but let's go ahead and focus on the ones that you didn't sell. It all feeds into that whole imposter syndrome that we all have. Do you ever talk back to that voice? When it comes yeah. up? Yeah. Well, I will say Katie, my other head of development, like my twin flame, she's like my Oprah. She's like, girl, no, you're good. You did a great job. They're idiots. I feel like I'm lucky because I have her. Do I ever talk to myself? That way, I wish I could say I did. And I went, you know, girl, look what you've done. This is why I need to keep doing podcasts where people do these fancy intros on me and remind me like where my career is. Yeah, it's important. Because you can forget, you can be in your own little head and be like, oh, I haven't done anything. I need to work harder. What's wrong with me? I should be further ahead. I should be doing more. And then you read your bio and you're like, huh. Okay. <laughs> All right, girl. You're good. But, you know, I have similar shame talk a lot of the time. And I was telling my therapist what was coming up. Now it still comes up. But she said something that changed my approach to when the voice comes up. She said, what do you think that voice wants you to know? Could you ask it what it wants you to know? So I'm very into woo. I'm very into all this stuff. So come with me on this ride, Carrie. Yeah, but, I love woo. but when I asked the voice, what I heard was, I don't want you to give up. I want you to keep going. And so I had to then come back to her and say, thank you so much. I don't want to give up either. This approach doesn't really work the best for me. Could we try another way? When I had that kind of dialogue back and forth with my shame talk, the voice quelled and it still comes back often, like daily, but I tried to breathe through it and kind of have those back and forths and ask what it wants me to know. And it's less severe now when it does come up. Oh, interesting. So that works for you. So far. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be times when it doesn't, but yeah, it was helpful to know because that's the recurrent shame talk I have. You're not doing enough. You need to do more. What's wrong with you? You know, those similar questions and accusations come up a time and time again. Sort of like, you know, when you're in a bad relationship and you don't know what to do and you think, what would I tell my friends? Yeah. It's like that where it's like, okay, like you're talking to me and you're like, oh, you're so successful. You've accomplished so much. It's like saying to a friend, girl, you know, your relationship is not healthy, right? Right. Like I can't see it myself. You can tell me. You can't see it when you're in the relationship. Like you can't get out. You have to imagine what you would say to your friend if they had had this success. Like right. I am somebody you've just met like a half hour ago, but I'm like looking at you, like I'm researching you. I've like really learned a lot about you just from like cyber stalking you. Like you're a big deal. Like you've done a really good job. You have relationships with the biggest people in Hollywood because you're a major producer in podcasting and all of your other experiences in your career. And you're relatively young. But the fact that you can't see that, there's just a natural blockage. It's like a human thing. We block it out. So we need to like look outside, like go outside, look at ourselves, our accomplishments from like 30,000 feet. That's what we all need to do and give ourselves some grace. I feel like there's a fear that if you stop being what I call the drill sergeant, like if you stop that inner drill sergeant or you stop that inner critic from speaking up, I think I have a fear that what if I get complacent? But I don't think that's true because I'm never going, going to. to and neither would you. So I feel like maybe we would do even more if we could at least let ourselves sit in 
the success for a minute and just well, look at what it. you were talking about when you were it was during COVID and you were like home in Michigan and you just like sat there and you're with your parents you were working on your podcast you were able to like let creative ideas flow into your brain you were like thinking about like what do I want in my life yeah. you had the space to just like consider what your next steps were going to be I know it's hard to say because so many people are going through so much but 2020 summer 2020 was one of the happiest times of my life yeah you got to just sit there and actually allow deep thoughts to come into your brain. It's like when I go to Michigan every summer, I put my phone away for like seven, eight days at my father-in-law's house. And all of a sudden it's like my brain, which has been like a sponge of just like information and like just too much stuff flowing into it all day, every day. Like it actually takes a break. And then all of a sudden these like deep thoughts start penetrating my mind and I start daydreaming again. I'm like, oh, is that what happens when you don't have constant like text and going on this social media platform and reading this article? And I feel like you had like months of that mm -hmm. where you were able to just sit and be with yourself and realign with your soul. It was powerful. And I'm curious too, when you do that, what happens when you come back to work? Because something I've discovered through this process is rest is a vital part of the creative process. What happens when you come back after that seven days? Before I came to Kinetic in 2010, I had like four months where I remember my boss, Chris, left my old company as CEO. And he's like, I'm going to start my own company. So I still had months left on my contract. And I remember going to the new boss that was hired and being like, okay, so just FYI, after my contract's up, I'm going to be leaving. I'm not going to come back to this company. He said, well, if you're going to work for Chris Colon, that's my boss now, we're not going to let you out of your contract. And I was like, okay. And he goes, but if you're going to go work for somebody else, it's fine. We'll let you out of your contract. And I said, well, there's a good chance like I'm eventually going to go work for him because I've worked for him for a long time and I love working for him. He goes, all right, well, we're not going to let you get a contract, but we want you to find your replacement. And I went, okay. I found my replacement, a friend of mine who was looking for a job. And my new boss said, well, we don't want you in the office, but you can just still be on the payroll. So I had like four to five months where I wasn't working. I was getting paid. And so I remember I was dating my now husband. He lived down in San Diego. I'd like drive down to San Diego. He'd go to work and I would just sit in his apartment. I'd started a blog. This was like 2010 with my best friend. And I'd like blog during the day. I'd like go walk on the beach in San Diego. And like, and what started happening after about a month, five, six weeks is all of a sudden, all of these like creative ideas started like whizzing into my brain. And like, I started getting ideas for TV shows and like companies we should work with and talent and all this. I feel like when I visualized it, my brain was like soaked and it just started like drying out and like airing out. Finally, I had all this room where new ideas could come in and new inspirations. And it was so wonderful. I feel like we're all like creatively waterlogged all the time because think about it. A million texts coming in. We're interacting with people all day long. We've got like social media we're all looking at. We've got all the news stories of the day and it's too much information. So how are we supposed to be taking all that in and then creatively just come up with new projects and ideas and strategies. Yeah. It's really hard. It's interesting you're bringing that up because this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And I coined a term in my own head that I'm going to share with you now. You're the first person to hear it. I call it creative debt. We're all in creative debt because we spend our whole days spending all of our energy on other people's creativity. So we're taking it and taking it and taking it and taking it and taking it. In. Reacting, 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 reacting. What could we possibly have left to give? It's as if you spent all your money and then you went to try to pay your bills. That's why when you sit in like your silence, whether it's taking a week off or if it's just taking one day a weekend, and I know this sounds crazy, but I just read a book about it. It was really good. This woman did this. And just like staying off your phone for 24 hours. She actually like bought a landline in case anybody, there was an emergency, but like you stay off your phone for 24 hours because it's creatively corrupting us. We're not able to just sit in our thoughts. We don't have deep thoughts anymore. I mean, when's the last time you sat there and you really allowed like a deep thought to come to your brain and go, God. Maybe like, I want to do this. Or maybe I need to call this person. Just going off and like reading a book and like having time to just sit and collect your thoughts. 
And I never, ever do that. I am constantly in reactionary mode to text all day from my friends, from colleagues, from relatives. And then I'm also like, I occasionally get on Insta. I did take it off my phone, but I still get it on my laptop. Staying off Twitter. I know you like Twitter. At least you did in 2020 because I heard you say it. My mind is constantly being overstimulated. And when you're overstimulated, when do you have the space to allow the creative thoughts come to you? They They come to you. Like the best ideas, like love is blind came to my boss, Chris. Like you have to fetch them. You have to fetch these ideas. If you don't have the space to do that mentally or creatively, when's it going to happen? So we have to allow ourselves the break from technology to just sit with ourselves. Just sit, go paint, go read a book, stay off your phone. I could like talk about this forever. No, we could do literally three hours of content just about this because there's so much to it. But I did want to get into development and what you do and also reality TV just in general, because here's my take. And it's something I've come to in the past couple of years through watching reality during the pandemic and seeing myself in these quote unquote characters slash people. I believe reality is one of our great art forms. And I always say I learn more about life and relationships from reality TV because even if it's produced, it's real people living real lives versus writers interpreting what real life is to them. Of course. Why do you feel reality TV is a great creative medium? Well, it's everything you just said. I mean, these are real human beings. But I once heard somebody, an exec, say they're put into ordinary situations, but they react extraordinarily, especially on shows that are like on Bravo, et cetera. But like, these are authentic people. And I think if you're a good producer and you're a good production company, like you're going to demand that these people be their authentic selves. And so we as viewers watch these people going through these situations. You either want to be them. You either want to be friends with them. You hate them. It's just like a whole spectrum of feelings you get from watching the human experience develop in front of you, unfold in front of you. You know, like I know you're a fan of Vanderpump. Love. And it's like watching this new season, you're sitting there going, God, there's just like a plethora of like human emotions being thrust at you. And if you're somebody who who enjoys the experience of being human and occasionally judges others, you're going to see yourselves in some of these people. You're going to judge. You're going to go, I can't believe they did that. But again, like the best reality shows are when people, there's a camera on them, but they're not guided to talk a certain way or act a certain way or perform a certain way. Like they're old. Be yourself. And if you have an amazing casting team, like we do, you're going to have casting execs who go, this person has an amazing story to tell. This person is so wonderfully reactionary. They're going to see the potential in everybody. So reality TV is just a reflection of society. That's all it is. I love it. I love it so much. Love is Blind, which is a show we produce. Number one show on Netflix. Thank you very much. (laughs) That was created because we always talk about like, what is the why? What is like the theme of our show? Is there a bigger conversation happening culturally? What is the conversation we want to create? And Chris was really thinking about like, what is like one of the most universal themes around love? And that's really that people want to be loved for who they are. Can you be loved for who you are? Is love blind? And so he had the idea with love is blind to do a show that like, when you look at like modern dating, technology really gets in the way. And he was thinking, how do you get to know people? How do you truly in this day and age like online dating, how do you really get to know people? How do you strip away all of that modern technology and let people blindly date and see each other for who they actually are? And so that stemmed from what's happening culturally. Like what's happening right now? We're all just swiping left. We're swiping left. We're like judging somebody off of like a picture or a few pictures of them. We're like, eh, no, like let's actually get to know the person as much as we can. So I just think it's just a reflection of really what's happening in society. So you work in development. I do. Can you take us through this process for someone who doesn't know what is development? How does it work? Development is coming up with an idea from anywhere. It could be like seeing a billboard and going, oh my God, there's something like on that billboard, like the wording, the title, the tagline. There's something there for a show or like 
listening to the radio or a song on Spotify and hearing a song title and going, oh, wait a minute, there's a show there. That's a great title for a show. What could it be? Development is taking a germ of an idea and then figuring out what the show is, what the format is, or who the characters could be, what the world is, what's the bigger conversation, the universal theme behind it, what's the why, what's the point? Why do people want this show? Like, why would they want the show? Then you just start fleshing it out. Whether it's a docu-soap, you go and you find the cast, say you want to examine, like get into the, like this city that hasn't been on TV yet. And you're like, you know what? This is like a really bougie town. And I know that's a Bravo show or that's a Hulu show. Like there's a docu-soap around that space. And I know they're like crazy, bougie, eccentric, affluent people here. Boom. What's our next step? Let's go and cast. Let's go and find a group of friends in that bougie city. Or if it's like a formatted show, like let's figure out what's the theme, what's the universal why of the show. And then let's figure out what are the cast members, like what are they going to be doing every episode? What are we going to be watching as a viewer? What's going to keep us from episode one to episode eight? There's a glut of TV. So you need to keep the viewer enraptured, like from beginning to end. What is that journey going to be? Why do we want to follow these people on that journey? And you hear a lot of ideas. You have a lot of ideas yourself. What do you believe is the commonality through all good ideas? What's the anatomy of a good idea? Hi, creative. If you're looking for a new podcast to listen to, I recommend you check out the Daring to Leap podcast with Lori Phillip. Lori left a successful 16-year career at Boeing to bet on herself, follow her heart, and create a bigger impact. Daring to Leap is a career empowerment podcast for women with a mix of career inspiration, self-development, practical advice, and stories of amazing women taking big leaps in their careers. One recent guest was a former burned-out corporate executive who broke out of guilt and workaholism to live her purpose as an energy healer and mindset coach. These are my favorite kind of stories, and I know that you'll get so much out of hearing them. So tune in every week on Tuesdays to get inspired to bet on yourself, step into your brilliance, and take a leap in your career in life. You can listen to Daring to Leap on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms. Make sure to check it out and let me know what you think. I mean, there is a lot of content out there, like a ton of content. So you have to have, first of all, that bigger why I've talked about, the bigger thesis, but you also have to make sure your show feels really fresh. Like I said, Chris had the idea with Love is Blind to do a show that sort of stripped away the distractions of like modern technology, like how do you meet people and truly get to know them? And he came up with the idea of singles dating blindly on like opposite sides of a wall, a glowing wall. But then he thought of the idea, well, they would only see each other when they get engaged. It's like, boom, holy shit. So there's a holy shit factor. And then you're following them. You're following these like incredible, beautiful characters, sometimes beautiful, sometimes not. <laughs> but you're like invested in them. Like you're invested in their journey. And so you're following them from beginning to end. And then at the end, it's like, holy shit, are they going to get married? Are they actually going to do it? I think that for every show now, because there are so many shows out there, there has to be the holy shit factor. I can't believe this is happening. This is huge. We had the show Ultimatum, which is really crazy because you're taking serious couples and they're getting a chance to see like, is the grass really greener? And all of our shows sort of have like a crazy holy shit factor. But you also have to love the cast members. You have to want to like root for them or love to hate them. There just has to be something they have to feel very authentic. There are a lot of shows out there where you watch and you just feel like the people are so trained. They've watched so much TV. So they know they're acting like we don't do that. We want right. people to be super, super authentic to the process and to themselves. I mean, those are great things for anyone, whether or not you want to make a reality TV show to remember to answer some sort of universal question, to have the holy shit factor and to keep showing up with the holy shit factor, because while answering these universal questions and I think that's why Love is Blind, The Ultimatum, all these shows are so interesting to us because they're answering questions we've all had about ourselves and about our lives. Am I with the right person? Could I ever really be loved for who I am? Oh my gosh, could I get married to someone that I don't know that well? Is marriage yeah. even right for me? 
And also, you've never seen them. So that there's the holy shit factor. You ask yourself, could I do that? Would I really do that? It's brilliant because the way you create shows, you put people in situations in the weirdo version of a situation they've been in. It's like the alternate universe version of a situation that everybody's been in. That's so brilliant and something I'm going to take with me as I'm ideating in the future. I've been really into like body feeling right now. So trying to take myself out of my head and ask like, how does it feel in my body when I'm around this person? Does my body clench up? Does it expand? When I have a new idea, does it feel like it's a small idea or something that's going to take me away from myself? Or is it kind of expansive? Mm -hmm. What happens in your body when you hear or have an idea that you know is a hit? Oh, it's like a tingling. Like I get excited. I get off on it. My coworker, Katie and I, we have this like shared language where she'll throw an idea out to me or a title. She'll be like, what do you think of this title? And I'm like, yes. She's like, I'm thinking sort of like maybe something along the lines of this type of show. And I'm like, yes. And it's just our juices start flowing, but it feels like a high. I get a high off of it. It's the funnest thing ever. Again, I love my job because my job is to, first of all, I have to watch a lot of TV. Again, going back to the 10-year-old Carrie. And all I'm doing is talking about TV all day. So if you can just distill your job and all the responsibilities that come with it to that basic passion, which for me is like TV. I love it. I'm a fan. Like there's something so special about coming up with something that just has that unique title hook. And she and I just like feed off of each other and feed off of that. And, and with our team too, because we have like an amazing team we work with. They're always pitching ideas and they've gotten so good at knowing like what is out there and what doesn't work and what does work. So it's just really fun hearing ideas from them. And we all just like brainstorm every week and it's fun. So fun. Having a job that's based on ideas and people is the greatest thing in the world. It is. It is. So tell me, you have brought up pitches quite a few times. I know that you've given a bunch of pitches, you've heard a bunch, and a bunch is probably a small word for thousands at this point. But what goes into an effective pitch? So I always like to start a pitch by connecting to something personally or something that's in the zeitgeist culturally so that that executive who has heard a lot of pitches that day probably, or is going to, connects as like a human. Oh, wow. So she was a only child. And that's why she's about to pitch the show. Like this is her experience as only child. Or, oh my God, that happened to her when she was a kid. Or, oh my God, like she's in that type of relationship. Or, oh my God, that statistic. I had no idea this was like such a huge trend. Something that like gets them connecting on an emotional level, a personal level. Why is this like so important? Why is this so relevant? And then from there, you just have to very cleanly sort of say, this is the show right at the top, because everybody makes an opinion, forms an opinion on whether they like a pitch or an idea within like 10 to 15, maybe 30 seconds tops. Boom. They know if they like the show. That's crazy. Yeah. 30 seconds, not five minutes, not two minutes, 30 seconds. So if you get their heart attached to it or like something like in their gut that goes, oh, wait, that's a trend. Oh, I had no idea. Or that's like something happening culturally in another part of the world in dating. Oh, that's fascinating. And then cleanly state the show at the very top, because again, you've got just a few seconds. So they know what they're about to hear. Okay. This is a show about blah, blah, blah. And then you get into the meat of the pitch, but it depends on the buyer, certain buyers like Netflix when Chris pitched Love is Blind, he had such an extensive pitch. Like he went through it. It was like a 125 page deck. And he had every single thing thought out in terms of here's visually what I want the pods to look like. This is the amount of people I want in the experiment because I don't think you should have this many. It's too many. I think you should have this amount of people. Like this is how I want the host to guide it. Like he thought through everything. But if you pitch to another buyer, it's totally different. Some buyers are like, I have like, 30 minutes. Tell me the show. I'll ask you a few questions. I'm out. I'm done. Okay. And then I'll let you know if I'm interested. So you have to be able to tell a story in a succinct way with something that connects to that person. It could be a show about farmers wanting to find a wife and you're pitching a 55 year old man. Wait, I want to watch that show. It's on Fox. It's oh, a is format. It? <laughs> yeah. It's called Farmer Once a Wife. Okay. 
I'm going to watch it. <laughs> oh, yeah. So what is it about like Love is Blind? What was it about it that got Chris to sell that to series? There were quite a few things, I think. But he connected to the buyers in a way where they probably, knowing those buyers, went, yeah, I am wanting to find love or I've been in the position where I wanted to find love and I wasn't sure if people would love me for who I am. It's like a basic human question. And so I have a new series coming up Yes, about professional bull riders. And I was given this article by my coworker, Keith, who's on our team. And he sent me an article about this group of really big, successful league of professional bull riders called PBR, Professional Bull Riders League. And I knew nothing about it. I'd heard of it, but I just didn't have any experience in professional bull riding. He sent me an article and it was like from Wall Street Journal. It was some big outlet. And it was about like this upcoming team series where the best bull riders in the world were coming together and they were forming teams and they were going to be competing. And I was like, hmm, you know, like this is actually happening. And this world of bull riding taps into the zeitgeist right now with like Yellowstone and people craving like this Americana, like rooted in the Western culture. And I was like, hmm, it's actually happening. So like, why don't we follow it happening? And so what I did was though, the way to sell that show isn't to just like pitch a show and say, okay, we're going to be pitching a show about professional bull riding and we're going to follow these bull riders. And it's really dangerous and it's crazy. No, you have to put your mind into the minds of the buyer and say, why are they going to want to buy this? They're going to buy it because Yellowstone's seeing massive success right now because there have been other shows in the non-scripted space with niche sports. Like there's a show on Netflix called F1 Drive to Survive about Formula One race car drivers that like did really well and made the sport explode. Since COVID, so many people are like moving out to like greener pastures and leaving the cities, like touch on like what's happening with that. So it's like when you're formulating your pitch, you have to go like, what are the whys? Like, why do they want this? And I kind of just put all that together, but then you got to dig into like the humans in this sport. And these guys, I started really like researching the sport and the men who do this. It is the most dangerous sport. You've got eight seconds and these guys go on this like 2000 pound rage filled beast. And for eight seconds, they're trying to hold on eight seconds. They're bucking. They've got these massive horns. And like so many of them are injured so severely and I'm like, why do they do this? Why are they trying to tame this beast? And I started just digging into like the human stories of the men who do this. And I'm like, there is so much more to just like surface level. Let's watch these guys ride bulls for eight seconds. No, no, no. Like let's peel back the sport mm. and go into like the human drama, the human elements. Like what are their families going through when they see this? Something I was curious about is what does drive them? Like, what is the interesting thing? Because I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast, if we're thinking about who we're pitching the show to right now, they care about like self-development, the human spirit, how we create things. What is it that drives these guys that's like the underneath and that people are going to get and learn about themselves when they watch this show? I mean, these are men who grew up on farms. They grew up with like people in their lives who are in the sport who like, would put them on sheep when they were like little boys and like be like, all right, you're going to learn, you're going to learn this, learn this. And so a lot of them grew up in this world, but there's something about them that comes alive when they like get onto this gigantic beast. It's like David versus Goliath. Mm. It's like they have this sort of like need to win over this beast. And like, by the way, these bulls are like treated so well, like they're bathed in milk and fed really well but like these men they want to conquer this beast and they know that they're putting their lives in the line every time they get on this bull like we have a character named chase outlaw that's his real name he was bucked into like the horn of a bull shattered every bone in his ah! face yeah and this is 2018 and he was told like you're never going to get on a bull again you're never going to ride and he was like i have to get on it i'm doing it and he was on like a couple months later there's something insatiable within them where they want to do it because 
it's like that hunger, like they have to get back on that beast. It's like, if you were to say, why did Michael Jordan love basketball so much? Or like, why do race car drivers put themselves in a really dangerous sport into that car going like 300 miles per hour? There's just an insatiable hunger. Like you have, they have to get back on the bull. A lot of them don't make very much money at all. So it's not like they're doing it for the money. They just really have this drive to want to like, the beast and like they have these amazing families who go to these competitions every weekend and watch their loved ones be brutally injured but they know that their loved ones love it so much that they can't stop them it sounds a lot like being an artist (laughs) i mean you have this insatiable need to tame the beast you don't necessarily make a lot of money from it even when you get thrown down you get back up because you have to because it's who you are Yes, exactly. I've never felt more connected to anyone besides professional bull riders, and I'm therefore excited to watch the ride. I want to say, like, we made the show so that people like you hopefully would be invested in these characters. Because we said we all have like a peripheral understanding of the sport of bull riding. We've seen it. Like we've seen the cowboys on the bulls. And there's like actually a quite a huge audience who watches it and is invested in this. But I wanted the people like you and I who knew nothing about the sport to watch it and go, oh my God, Chase Outlaw. He's battling himself. He's battling his body. He's had these like life-threatening injuries. Like what are the obstacles he's overcoming like as a human being? Like I want to connect with him as a human being. Like what is he going through? I think is in any good non-scripted show, like these are real people. We're not writing storylines for them. We as humans, like sitting on our couches or wherever can relate to them. Oh, and we can go, I've been through those battles. I've had those struggles. But like, look at him overcoming these struggles. And like, there's something just so relatable to these people who watch on TV. Of course, sometimes they're not relatable at all. And we want to like throw our phone at them. But it's this sort of spectrum of emotions that reality TV makes us feel. Like it's something that I've felt since I watched it in, when I was 12, you know, yeah. watching Real World. I still feel that way. And now when I'm developing, I have that in mind. What is it about these people It's going to make you want to like tune into them. Like, even though they're a professional bull rider, you know nothing about the sport. Like there's something intrinsic in them. You're going to want to go on a journey with them. Well, that's what I love about reality TV is it's raw emotion. It's raw humanity and it's connection. It is. And it's instant. It's not like a slow burn. Now from the opening credits, you feel something. And I love scripted TV. And I, you know, I studied acting in college. So I have great respect for actors. But there's something that I've just grown a reverence for reality TV in the last year. It's just become one of my favorite mediums. It's actually a way I kind of recharge myself and get new ideas. So I'm so grateful for the ideas you put into the world, for all that you've shared. And just for being an amazing human being in this industry, because we need more of you. People like you need to succeed because we need more people to feel safe to share their ideas and to feel safe to be themselves. And so I'm grateful you exist for all of the above reasons. I have one final question for you. Okay. If you and the 10-year-old MTV-loving version of yourself who is sitting in Muncie, is it Muncie, Indiana? Muncie, Indiana. (laughs) Muncie, Indiana. If you and her we're standing in the same room today and looking at each other. What do you think she would say to you today and why? She'd be like, wait a minute, how many channels do you get to watch every day? Wait, what? There. First of all, she would give me a high five and she would sit there probably with her chocolate milk and <laughs> next to me. And we would sit there in the armchair in my grandma's house in Muncie, Indiana. And honestly, like we would just sit in awe of like all this TV content that is available to us and watch for hours on end and be so happy together. She'd be really proud of me because I'm doing something that's so exciting and I've always loved. I have the best job and it's not easy, but it stems from something I loved as a kid. So she'd be like, right on sister. Good job. And what would you say to her and why? Oh gosh. I'd say, keep watching all the MTV you want. Take it in because you'll reference that 30 years later in your pitches. I still talk about why don't we have MTV spring break? It was iconic. It was iconic. I mean, we still reference Real World. We still reference all these shows that I was watching as a teenager. So I would say, pay attention. When you go to college, pay a little bit more attention in your classes. Because actually some of the things that you learn in classes, you'll need to know when you're an adult and when you're in your career. Go ahead and maybe like do that. But 
No, she'd be proud of me. And I'd be like, you just keep doing what you're doing. Just like be a human sponge. Just take it all in, take it all in. Cause it's actually going to help you one day. You don't know it now. You're just like a little girl in Indiana, but all of this, you're going to use it as a foundation for what you need to know in the future, which is crazy to think. Well, I'm so glad that little girl in Indiana watched that TV, dreamed big and ended up here. And I'm so grateful you shared this hour. I'm so grateful for you and for all your incredible ideas and who you are. Who you are is really the best thing about you, Carrie. You're an amazing person. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to my guest, Carrie Wolf. For more info on Kinetic Content, follow at Kinetic Content. And be sure to check out The Ride, which is out now on Prime Video. Thanks to Rachel Fulton for helping edit this episode. Follow her at Rachel M. Fulton. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag at Kinetic Content so they can share as well. My wish for you this week is that you allow yourself the time to rest that is necessary for the creative process slash just to be a human. Rest does not need to be earned. It is your birthright and literally necessary for human life. Plus, you never know what ideas that stillness could invite. Keep me updated on what it brings to you. And remember, I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.